We've been following a very defined structure for the book of Leviticus, which we've talked about at length at other times, so I'll just summarize it now. This is called a chiastic structure, meaning it starts with one point, it goes to the center, and then it backs up with parallel points. And they're not the exact same thing, but there's usually a change to them that takes place in the middle. And the way that the story structure works is you're going through everywhere you went beforehand, except now you see it or do it differently because of what happened in the middle. And the middle of the book of Leviticus is the Day of Atonement. And the middle of the Day of Atonement story, you know, is the sprinkling of the blood in the Holy of Holies. So the center of the center of the center, as we have said, is that. And we are on our way out, and we are now parallel with the first section we had, which was the book of sacrifice. Remember our first couple of weeks, we were talking about what is a burnt offering? What is a guilt offering? What is a grain offering? Well, now we're going through the feasts and the festivals. Last time we spent time looking at all the different festivals they had, and I think we all had a lot of fun with that, especially looking at Passover and the, the traditions they had and how they all point to our Lord Jesus. And tonight we're going to continue that. We're going to have a brief narrative detour that still fits within the structure. But you remember in the beginning of Leviticus, in chapter 10, we had the death of Nadab and Abihu. There is a parallel to that where there is another death that happens in this chapter, chapter 24, which only further emphasizes the, the chiastic nature of Leviticus, that on either side there's balance and there's proportion. And so most of this tonight is going to be focusing on the Sabbath year, the year of Jubilee, things like that. There are some miscellaneous matters, so we'll spend most of our time in chapter 25, and we'll go pretty quickly through chapter 24. This is an important section to know, especially chapter 25. These concepts, these events are, are echoed throughout the Old and New Testaments. And once you start to recognize some of these phrases, they crop up an awful lot, especially when you're reading the New Testament. I think we've seen that several times in the book of Leviticus where Paul will say something and it just sounds poetic and nice, but then you realize that's a phrase from Leviticus. So Paul saying this sentence here in the New Testament has all the weight of the symbol and the, the uh, lessons of Leviticus or numbers or whatever it may be behind it. And so tonight, talking about the year of Jubilee especially, very significant for the good Bible student. And as with just about all of the law, there's a lot of foreshadowing of Christ here. And you might even say that the higher the symbol in the Old Testament, the greater the fulfillment in our Lord Jesus. So something like the Day of Atonement, which is the pinnacle of the law, is fulfilled, of course, in the pinnacle of the New Testament, which is the death and resurrection of Jesus. Well, the year of Jubilee is, is also, it's on the way in, we are making sacrifices, and on the way out, we're celebrating, and the peak celebration in the law is the year of Jubilee. So you're going to see, again, a lot of high fulfillment and a lot of New Testament allusion to that. So let's begin looking at chapter 24. We'll read verses 1 through 9. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the people of Israel to bring you pure oil from beaten olives for the lamp, that a light may be kept burning regularly. Outside the veil of the testimony, in the tent of meeting, that of course is the tabernacle, Aaron shall arrange it from evening to morning before the Lord regularly. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. He shall arrange the lamps on the lampstand of pure gold before the Lord regularly. 
You shall take fine flour and bake twelve loaves from it. Two-tenths of an ephah shall be in each loaf. And you shall set them in two piles, six in a pile, on the table of pure gold before the Lord. And you shall put pure frankincense on each pile, that it may go with the bread as a memorial memorial portion, as a food offering to the Lord." Every Sabbath day, Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly. It is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, since it is for him a most holy portion out of the Lord's food offerings, a perpetual due. We're calling back to what's going on in the tabernacle itself. We saw this mostly at the end of Exodus when they were given the instructions on how to build these things. And then we actually watched them build them and assemble the temple. And that's how Exodus ends. Well, now we're given commands to maintain what went on in the holy place. You remember the, the tabernacle was a, an, it was a tent, but it was much more elaborate and solid than a, an average tent like we think of. But it was surrounded by the courtyard. You went into the courtyard. That's where the altar was. That's where the bronze laver was. Then you went inside the tabernacle into the first room, which was called the holy place. And that is where you had three furnishings. You had first, right ahead of you as you walked in, the altar of incense. It was a golden altar, as I've said, about the size and dimension of my pulpit right here, where there would be incense burnt. And we've already looked at some of that in the book of Leviticus. Now we're going to look at the other two. If you're walking into the holy place, on the left-hand side would have been the golden lampstand. That's that word menorah. That's where it comes from. It means lampstand. And it was, as we got the design in the book of Exodus, shaped like a seven-branched olive tree. And you saw that it described it with its flowers and its petals. It was supposed to be very elaborate and ornate. And we actually have a pretty good idea of what this looks like because we have carvings of Roman soldiers carrying away the implements of the temple and they're very plainly holding what is a menorah and looks today like a menorah. So we're we're pretty familiar with what that shape was. And this was placed in the left-hand side of the holy place with seven lamps and they were to constantly maintain, we read here, the lamp. The fire was never to go out. This is where the story of Hanukkah is so miraculous that the Lord maintained the oil for eight days while they made more. This is where you see in 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 3, when young Samuel is in the tabernacle and he hears the Lord calling him, Samuel, Samuel, and he runs back to Eli. You know the story. He was lying in the holy place. And you say, why that? Because he was waiting for the time to change the oil. It said that the light of the lamp had not gone out yet because he's waiting to trim the lamps and make sure that things were taken care of. And he's the young kid, so he's the one that has to stay up late and take care of it. And we've looked at the symbolism of these things a lot, especially the primary thing that the lampstand symbolized was the Holy Spirit. Zechariah chapter 4, he sees the two olive trees that are feeding oil directly into this golden lampstand. And the idea being, you don't need to provide the oil. I myself will constantly provide the oil needed to keep the lamp burning. And of course, the lesson that Zechariah got from that was, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. In Revelation chapter 4, the Holy Spirit is described in heaven as the seven spirits, the seven burning spirits of God, or the sevenfold spirits of God. And uh, actually, that whole picture in Revelation is kind of like a glorified tabernacle. If you want to go back and read it that way, it's pretty cool. 
So that's the first thing. You're to maintain the lampstand. It's never supposed to go out. Second of all, on the right-hand side, as you go into the holy place, was the table of showbread. Now, this was a low table, because you remember they reclined at table in this culture. It wasn't high like ours are. And it was on the right-hand side. There were 12 unleavened loaves that were placed there. It's called the bread of the presence. Traditionally, it's called the showbread. And that's what I grew up calling it, so I'm probably going to call it that a lot. And uh, these were big loaves. I actually managed to look this up this time. Two-tenths of an ephah is about three and a half pounds of flour. So these were big. Don't think of little, you know, little matzahs here. These were big loaves. So you wonder, how could the priests be sustained by just these little things? Well, they were big. They were stacked up six high. So you had 12 of them, which represented the 12 tribes of Israel. They had the frankincense placed on the top. If you remember from the grain offering, when you brought a grain offering to the Lord, most of it would be given to the priests because that's how they would eat the bread and they'd be sustained that way. Then you would take the memorial portion, which was usually a pinch of the flour or one of the loaves, and you would take the frankincense and you would burn it so that there would be an aroma that came with it. So it seems even when the priests ate the showbread, they would take maybe a piece of it, maybe they tore a bit, I don't know, and they would take the frankincense with it and offer that on the burnt or the brazen altar, I should say. And the bread represented, of course, you can see the people, the 12 tribes of Israel represented by the 12 loaves of bread. It also represents a lot of different things. Uh, I mean, you can see in the holy place, you've got the pillar of cloud and fire with the incense and the fire. And you've got the bread, which is like the manna. So it's a memorial of their time in the wilderness. It's a picture of heaven where you can see the, the bread that the Bible says the Lord sent down. That's the manna. You've got the lights, which represents the sun, the moon, and the stars. You've got the incense, which represents the clouds. All kinds of cool symbolism that we've looked at before. But primarily what we're looking at here is the bread representing the people was to constantly be under the light of God's Holy Spirit. That God was constantly looking down upon them, shining his light upon them. What is the, the blessing that the priest would give? Do you remember? May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. And this was symbolized by the seven lamps that were shining on the 12 loaves. And this was never to go out because God's never going to turn his face away from his people. Jesus in John 6, 48 called himself the bread of life. And in John 8, verse 12, he called himself the light of the world. All of this was pointing to Jesus. What did he say? You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have life, but these are they which testify of who? Of me, he said. The bread of life and the light of the world. So I'm sure these priests didn't know it at the time, but as they go in there and they're setting up these loaves of bread and they're setting these lamps and burning the incense, they, they were symbolically, like in the imagination of the people, preparing the way for Jesus Christ to come. And I think for our own lives, we can see that God shines his light on us constantly. When you are invited into God's house, it's not flickering. It doesn't go on and off whenever you're not there. You are welcomed into his presence. So God's not going to forsake you. He's not going to give you up. But at the same time, they were to be constantly maintaining the oil, constantly maintaining the loaves of bread. So this would preach on its own, but you, need to, you on your own need to make sure that you are constantly coming back into God's presence to be refreshed. I mean, every morning you should be spending time with the Lord. Spend, my, my dad, when I was a kid, said, you got to go spend quiet time. And I always felt like kind of a childish phrase to me. But as I got older and things got noisier, I kind of value my quiet time in the morning. Take the time to come back into God's presence. He hasn't forsaken you, but you just need to be refreshed in God's presence. 
A lot more we could say about that, but we're going to move on. Verse 10. And this is, a, this is the parallel story that I was telling you about, parallel to Nadab and Abihu. Now an Israelite woman's son, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the people of Israel. And the Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel fought in the camp. And the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the capital N name and cursed. Then they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Shelomit, the daughter of Dibri of the tribe of Dan. And they put him in custody till the will of the Lord should be clear to them. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring out of the camp the one who cursed, and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head, like when they would sacrifice an animal. Do you remember that? They would lean on the head. And let all the congregation stone him, and speak to the people of Israel, saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. The sojourner, as well as the native, when he blasphemes Hashem, the name, he shall be put to death. So this is the second execution story in Leviticus. But can you see how we've switched, we've advanced? In the beginning, God sent fire from the holy place to consume Nadab and Abihu. This time, God is putting the responsibility upon the people to execute his righteousness. So he's saying, if you're going to dwell in my midst, that's the whole point of Leviticus, right? You yourselves have to take responsibility for the holiness of the people. That's what it was. When you, when you laid your hands on the, on the sheep or the goat, or whatever it was. It wasn't just put your hand on it. It was lean on it. The idea is you yourself are identifying with this creature. In the same way, you yourselves have to take responsibility for the sin in your midst. So what we have here is you have a young half-Egyptian man. Do you remember that in the book of Exodus, many Egyptians came with them? Their former slave masters followed their slaves into the wilderness and chose to be worshipers of the Lord. It also could be that perhaps this, this woman had been abused by one of her Egyptian captors, and that's where he was born. It doesn't really say anything about that other than he was half Egyptian. And the point is not to say he was inferior. The point is to establish the principle of justice that the Lord is going to lay down in the following verses. But he got into a fight and he blasphemed the Lord. Exodus twenty two twenty eight had said, You shall not curse the Lord nor revile a ruler of your people. Who knows what he said? But so much for, I was in the heat of the moment, so it doesn't count, huh? He was in a fight and at some point he used the holy name of God, that Jehovah name of God, to curse it doesn't say whether he was cursing the Lord. It doesn't say whether he was cursing this man. Probably more along those lines, I would guess. This is the example in the Old Testament of taking God's name in vain. Exodus 20, verse 7 from the Ten Commandments. A very serious thing. And we've had a study not long ago where we talked about language and the things that we say. And so many of our, we just call them cuss words, are oaths that are used to usurp the authority of God. Whenever you call upon God to damn someone or something, that is not your place and that is not your right to use his name that way. Or to tell someone to go to hell is the similar kind of thing. Or to use the name Jesus like you would use any other exclamation. These are holy things. Jesus has the name above every other name. We're to value it. When the name of Jesus comes out of our mouth, when the name of God comes out of our mouth, it's a holy thing. 
And the Lord took this very seriously. There's a further lesson, as I mentioned, that the people of God are to maintain discipline and holiness among themselves. This is totally true for the New Testament church also. Matthew 18, Jesus gave us a system to follow. of If your brother is in sin, go to him alone. Go to him with some trusted friends. Then take it to the church. As in, you need to do what you can to gain your brother, Jesus said. But it also is, you can't be like Cain and say, am I my brother's keeper? Because Jesus would say, yes, you are. We see this in 1 Corinthians, where Paul is instructing the church how to go about church discipline. Thankfully, we've not ever had to do that here. I'm sure the day will come. But may the Lord delay it for a long, long time. But you can see the transition here in the book of Leviticus, that no longer is the Lord. The Lord did it the first time, but now it's up to the people. It's similar to how God judged Ananias and Sapphira the first time. But it's up to us to maintain the integrity of God's church moving forward. So there's even parallel between the covenants you can see. And you notice there, the the last verse we read in verse 16, the sojourner as well as the native. That's probably why the Lord included this particular story, because it included somebody that maybe technically wasn't fully Hebrew. So maybe your law doesn't apply to me. But God is going to make it very clear as we keep reading that that was no excuse. Verse 17, now to the end of the chapter. Whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good, life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor, as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good. Whoever kills a person shall be put to death. You shall have the same rule, here it is again, for the sojourner and for the native, for I am the Lord your God. So Moses spoke to the people of Israel, and they brought out of the camp the one who had cursed and stoned him with stones. Thus the people of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses. And what God does here is he reminds them that there is a just foundation to his law. And he repeats what's called uh, formally the lex talionis which is the law of the hand, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. And we see this three times in the book of the law. Once is in Exodus 21, once is here in Leviticus 24, and once is in Deuteronomy 19. God repeats this a lot, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. And he gives us examples of what that looks like practically in verses 17, 18, and 19. Murder bears the death penalty. That's perfectly fair, isn't it? A life for a life. Property damage incurs recompense. So if you damage someone's animal, it's not talking about your pet parakeet. It's talking about your ox or your donkey or your pig or something like that. They didn't keep pigs, but you get the idea. That if you damage it, you need to pay for it. Number three, injury must be fairly repaid. Now, as I've said very often, the judges in Israel would have had discretion with each case, extenuating circumstances, just like we do today. But here's the law. Fairness. In the Babylonian laws, for example, uh, you could have one of your slaves punished for you for something you did. Well, God doesn't do that. You know, you, you killed somebody's horse, well, then you were killed yourself. And God goes, no, a human is worth more than a horse, so you, that's not a capital crime. The eye for an eye law meant that the penalties needed to be equitable, meaning they applied to everybody equally, and fair, meaning the punishment needs to suit the crime. Not arbitrary, not subject to the whims of whoever's in charge. And the law also applied to foreigners. And what we see here is they get no special exemptions. 
So like you're living in our land, you obey our laws. So that's, that's an important principle the Bible establishes. But they also are given no further oppressive burdens upon them, which is something else that we can apply to our own time. It's like, just because you are not a citizen doesn't mean you should be deprived of justice or mercy or any of the things that we ourselves expect. And how that plays out legally is really not my domain, but the principle is pretty clear in Scripture. I also ought to mention just something I've been thinking about lately and something to which I don't know that I have a lot of answers on. But you see, the, the, what the Lord did in the law was the person that committed the crime was very directly involved in making it good with the person against whom he had committed that crime. And this is, so hear me now, this is just a thought. I'm just thinking this through as I read through the law, as I've been going into the, to the prison system and that kind of thing. You know, it's, it seems as though we in our, in our day, we have very extreme measures of punishment. You either are going to go to prison or you're going you're to pay a fine and that's about it. And there might be something to be said for the way that the Lord kind of had a scale of how things were, were punished. And it's very easy to say, well, we'll just send them to prison because you don't see that. Uh, but it's, it is interesting how the Lord, if you, you know, stole something from somebody, you then had to confront and be with that person. You couldn't just be in, a, in an anonymous system. So all that to say that maybe there's something we can learn from what the Lord has to say. And I'm not sure I has the, have the answer, but it is interesting to me that you have such a wide range of people that I meet and they all ended up with the same thing. And I don't know if I have much more than thoughts at this point, but it's just something to pray through. Well, the son of Shelomit was stoned outside the camp. Outside the camp, because God's presence is holy, right? So you're going to take the sin out. Deuteronomy is going to use the phrase, purge the evil a lot. And of course, when we read this, this passage about eye for eye, tooth for tooth, we ought to remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 and 39. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. You need to feel the gravity of the fact that Jesus is saying, you've heard it was said, meaning the Bible says, but I say. That's what it meant when they said, this guy talks with authority. He's, he's, he's quoting scripture and then saying, but here's what I say. Go beyond the scripture, which was always the Lord's intention for his law, right? Go beyond the letter and live out the spirit of the law. And Jesus is not in that verse abrogating the legal principle. He's not saying that criminals shouldn't be punished. He's saying you and your personal interactions can show mercy and humility to each other. You don't always need to get the full extent of what is owed to you when you've been insulted, hurt, or offended. It's very easy to demand your rights when we've been hurt, but Jesus tells us, just let it go. Just let it go. That's how we show love to the world. Well, we're going to get into chapter 25 now, which is, we had a little bit of a detour with that story. We've been talking about festivals and then the regular days of maintaining the 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 offerings, or I should say the bread and the oil in the tabernacle. Then you have this story, which seems to kind of come out of nowhere, but so did the story about Nadab and Abihu. So you see the parallels here. But we're going to continue with the same section of 25, talking about festivals and festivities. So let's read the first seven verses. The Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, parentheses, we're still at Mount Sinai. They're going to be there for until the second year and the second day. 
The whole book of Leviticus takes place in the same spot they ended in the book of Exodus. They won't leave until Numbers. But the Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you, the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years you shall sow your field, and for six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its fruits. But in the seventh year there shall be a Shabbat, a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap what grows of itself in your harvest or gather the grapes of your undressed vine. It shall be a year of solemn rest for the land. The Sabbath of the land shall provide food for you, for yourself and for your male and female slaves and for your hired worker and the sojourner who lives with you and for your cattle and for the wild animals that are in your land. All its yield shall be for food. This is the Sabbath year which we've already seen in the book of Exodus, but the Lord reemphasizes it here. The Sabbath was not just for the seventh day, but it also was for the seventh year. God instructs his people to abstain for one year from working in their fields. You're not to go out and prune the, the grapevines. You're not to go out and, and hoe the field and plant the seeds. You're supposed to let it lie for a year. Now, this was not Sabbath as in you couldn't do any regular work. What it's saying is the work of agriculture and harvest, your regular farming endeavors are not to be executed every seventh year. Let the land lie fallow. And there have been many people that have written about the wisdom of this, how the, the technology of agriculture and farming wasn't fully developed at this point, but letting the land rest like that would have allowed that land to remain arable for a lot longer. I've already mentioned the story about how uh, the Americans at the end of 1800s and into the early 1900s completely wasted the land in the middle of the country with growing wheat instead of the buffalo grass and the land wasn't ready for it. And that's where we got the Dust Bowl. So the Lord was ahead of even our time not that long ago. But also not just for that practical reason. That's a subsidiary thing. It's also so that the people could celebrate the rest of the Lord, the shalom, the peace of God. And while this might not seem like such a big deal, it was disobedience to this law, ultimately, that caused God to send the children of Israel into exile. Now, there were other things. There was idolatry. There was sexual immorality. There was injustice and oppression. But the duration of their exile was determined by the number of Sabbath years they had skipped. 2 Chronicles 36, verses 20 through 21, describing when King Nebuchadnezzar came in and sacked the city of Jerusalem and finally laid waste to the city, it says, He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. Jeremiah had prophesied, we're going to be exiled for 70 years because we've been in this land for 490 years and we've not kept the Sabbath year once. It's important to notice this, that the children of Israel did not keep most of the law. They kept pieces of it, but it was really the highlights of the, of the time of the Bible are when people were keeping the law. Most of the time they weren't. In fact, it doesn't seem like they kept the year of Jubilee, which we're going to talk about in a minute, until the days of Nehemiah. So 
the Lord said, I'm going to exile you for 70 years. That's where that number came from. It was not arbitrary. This is why in Daniel chapter 9, verse 2, it says Daniel had calculated that it had been 70 years since the destruction of Jerusalem. And he remembered what Jeremiah had said, so he begins to fast and pray. And then, interestingly enough, when God reveals how much time remains for the children of Israel until the kingdom is established, he tells them you have 70 sevens, 70 weeks. So that's, that's, that'll cook your noodle on its own right there, wouldn't it? 70 more sevens, 70 more weeks. God took the Sabbath of his land very seriously. But as Jesus reminds us in Mark 2, 27, God does not honor the Sabbath for legalistic reasons. Jesus said, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. It's really unfortunate. There's an otherwise great book that I've been reading about the book of Leviticus. And this fellow who's writing this book got off into this a little bit, explaining that creation was made for the Sabbath and men were supposed to keep God's holy day. And he really started to drift into this was something that God had intended for its own purpose. And he didn't say the words, but he had a couple sentences where he almost said, man was made in order to keep God's Sabbath. And that's a great example of why you have to read the Old Testament in light of the new. You have to interpret the written word by the incarnate word and what Jesus said. If you want to know what God thinks about something, ask Jesus. Well, then why did God take the Sabbath so seriously? Because it teaches them and thereby teaches us to acknowledge God as the provider of all your needs. Every seven years, you're going to not work. Well, what are we going to eat if we're, if we're not harvesting? You notice what he said there. He said, the Sabbath of the land shall provide food for you. What does that mean? It's going to be clarified later on in this chapter. But what he's saying is, you are not to go out there and work the fields. Anything that grows, you may eat. But you're only allowed to take enough for you to eat. You're not to go out and harvest the grapes and save them for next year or sell them or any such thing. So not only... Would agriculture grind to a halt, but commerce would grind to a halt? Trade would grind to a halt? And all the other countries, Tyre and Sidon, would be saying, what do you mean you're not selling food this year? You're not even working the fields this year? Why? Because our Lord God brought us out of the land of Egypt and he fed us with manna in the wilderness and water from the rock. He can provide all of our needs. So this is our way of trusting him. It compelled them. It was a legally mandated lesson to put your livelihood in God's hands regularly. We're going to see more of that when we get to the year of Jubilee, where they would do this for two years in a row. Likewise, you, Christian, need to trust that God will cover your obedience with his grace and provision. So many folks will listen to a Bible study about doing the right thing, nod, agree, yes, Lord, amen, and then promptly go home and say, but I can't because of this reason. Not even feeling guilty about it. Just knowing, well, God knows I, I can't because you know, I have work or I have school or I have this or that or uh, my, my boss won't allow that or such and such thing. Say, well, if I don't do that, I won't make any money. Well, who provides for you, Christian? It's not your boss. It's not you. It's not your husband. It's the Lord himself. I love telling the story of when the silver idol makers wrote letters to the church father Tertullian. And they said, listen, we've just got saved. We make all of our money selling these silver idols. Uh, Should we stop? And he writes back and says, "Uh, yeah, you should stop. Stop making idols for people to worship. And they responded and said, but this is my living and I must live. To which the church father responded, must you live? 
I love that. That's why he's a church father, because he can say stuff like that. But it's true. The book of Haggai teaches this too. The Bible says that when you are not honoring the Lord with the first fruits of your harvest, with your tithes and your offerings at least, when you are not taking the time to prioritize righteousness and not business in your house, if you don't do that, the Bible says you're putting your money into a bag full of holes. He says, repair my house first, and then you can put panels on your own house. Trust that if you step out in obedience, God will cover it with his grace. I'm not promising you'll be able to stay in your preferred tax bracket, but I'm promising that you'll have everything you'll ever need. Matthew 6, 31 through 33, Jesus said, Do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? The Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. All what things? Your food, your clothing, your drink, all your necessities. And by the way, the Bible also says with food and clothing, we are to be content. So that's something else for us to learn. But that's the Sabbath year. Let's move on to the verses 8 through 22. You shall count seven weeks of years. So this is one reason among many why we interpret Daniel the way we do, talking about the 70 years, because 77s of years. Seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land, and you shall consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. That 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself, nor gather the grapes from the undressed vines, like a Sabbath year. For it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You may eat the produce of the field. And that's what I was talking about before. You're not actively working it, but in order to get your daily sustenance, you can go and gather what you need for the day. Your daily bread, you might say. In this year of jubilee, each of you shall return to his property. And if you make a sale to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor, you shall not wrong one another. You shall pay your neighbor according to the number of years after the Jubilee, and he shall sell to you according to the number of years for crops. If the years are many, you shall increase the price. And if the years are few, you shall reduce the price. For it is the number of the crops that he is selling to you. You shall not wrong one another, but you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God." Therefore, you shall do my statutes and keep my rules and perform them, and then you will dwell in the land securely. And if you say, what shall we eat in the seventh year if we may not sow or gather in our crop? Can you hear the echoes of the Sermon on the Mount here? I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year so that it will produce a crop sufficient for three years. When you sow in the eighth year, you will be eating some of the old crop. You shall eat the old until the ninth year when the crop arrives." So here we have the year of Jubilee, after the seventh seven. So you would have seven Sabbath years, and then the following 50th year would be the year of Jubilee. Now that word Jubilee is actually a transliteration of the Hebrew. So there was no English word Jubilee until we took it from this word here, which is Yovel. Or sometimes you translate the Y into a J, and it becomes Jubal, or 
Jobel, but it made its way somehow to Jubilee. Anyway, that's where it comes from. And the word Yovel in Hebrew means trumpet. It actually means horn, like a ram's horn, and that's how they would make it. It's not the same word as shofar. They're a little bit different, but it's the same idea. This was God's holy reset for the society. Everything would come back to zero and start again. And there are three things about the year of Jubilee. Number one was rest. They were to do no work. It essentially was a second Sabbath year. They were to eat what grew on its own and anything that they had stored from before then. But the Lord promised, I'm going to take care of all that. You're not going to have to do anything extra. So rest is the first thing. Second is freedom. They were to free all their Hebrew slaves. And we'll get more details on this in a second. Regardless of contract terms. So do you remember in Exodus 21 verse 2, you were able to sell yourself into slavery. We might call it indentured servitude to be more precise now. Uh, But say, I'll sell you my labor for this many years. The maximum was six and you would be released in year seven. But during the year of Jubilee, it didn't matter how many years you had served, you would be released during the year of Jubilee. You can read about that in Exodus 21 for more of those details. So rest, freedom, and number three was redemption. All property was to return to its original owners. And the only exception, as we'll read later on, was if you owned a house in a walled city. It only applied to the land, the the cultivated land. There's also a note in the middle here from verses 13 through 17 that the sale of property was to factor in these special years. So it says, don't wrong one another, you know, be just when you sell things. And he says, that means when you are selling somebody a piece of land, you need to factor in the fact that one year out of seven, they won't be able to work the land. You also need to factor in that the year of Jubilee is coming up. If you know Jubilee is coming in two years, you don't get to charge a 50 year price You can charge a two year price. But if you know that it's a long time until the year of Jubilee, then you need to factor that cost in. So the Lord expected them to take this into account and they were not to manipulate the system to make an extra buck. He also says that God would provide a surplus in the years leading up to the Sabbath year in order to feed them. This is just like when Joseph interpreted Pharaoh's dream. And there were going to be seven years of plenty and they were going to have so much food that it would cover them for the seven years of famine. Can I just say real briefly and meditate on this in your own time, if God's going to send you into a season of hardship, he's going to give you everything you need for that before you get there. So trust the Lord, honor him with with your resources. He'll take good care of you. But what he's telling them is, is when you harvest in year six, leading up to year seven, which was the Shabbat, in year six, I'm going to give you triple the harvest which will supply you for year six, year seven, and year eight. And in year eight, you'll be harvesting and you'll be able to move on to the year following that. And we can assume there would have been an extra year tacked onto that leading into the year of Jubilee every 50 years. So there's a major, major step of faith here for the people, huh? For two years, you're not going to work the field. I'll take care of you. Now, this whole thing is such a strange idea to us, isn't it? But just think a minute, wouldn't it be great if every 50 years we had an economic reset, all debt was canceled, everybody got to go back to their house, and anybody that was in a bad contract could get out of it. We already got rid of slavery a while ago, so thank the Lord for that. But just to set everything up again, it's like, all right, everybody starts clean. And we say, well, I don't know if I like that, because what if I've accumulated a lot? 
What if I've gotten a lot of land? What if I've gotten a lot of money and I've got to give some of it back? Well, the Lord isn't really too concerned with that. The Bible, I, I'll just say this very quickly. If you read through the way that God set up his society, it was not a strict capitalist society or a communist society. Now, commies will read this and be like, it's not fair. They should have given everything to everybody and just shared it all. No, the Lord took property rights very seriously. In fact, more seriously than we do in a lot of ways, because even if you've sold it, it's still technically yours. But it's also not capitalist, because we look at that and we go, oh, it just sounds like socialism to me, giving land away and giving it to people. But the Lord's like, I don't need anybody exalting themselves and beating down other people by gaining lots of stuff. The Lord honors property and he honors charity in his system. And I'm not decrying anything. I'm just pointing out the way the Bible did it. More importantly than that, though, the Jubilee year was a prophecy of the coming of the kingdom of the Messiah. Will you turn with me to Luke chapter 4? This is kind of a longish passage, so I want you to, to read this with me. Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 21. This is, of course, the story of Jesus. He came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. Jesus is going to quote here from Isaiah 61. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. And see if this doesn't sound familiar based on what we just read. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's Jubilee language. And Jesus quotes that. And then in verse 20, rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He's reading Isaiah's prophecy of the end times year of Jubilee that'll cover the whole world. And Jesus said, here I am. Let the Jubilee begin. He said he was the fulfillment of that. And is he not? Do we have rest in Jesus? We only have rest in Jesus. We're set free from the struggle of life, that struggle with God that we're all living through and walking through. You, you hear thoughtful people that are not believers try to engage with religious ideas, and you can just hear the distress in their voice as they talk about this, this terrible reality that God might be out there somewhere, and here I am, and I know what I'm like. You find rest in Jesus. Do we find freedom in Jesus? We sing it all the time. I'm no longer a slave to fear, no longer a slave to sin. We're set free by the Holy Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. We've been talking about our liberties in the book of Romans on Sundays. That we're no longer walking according to the letter of any law, but according to the life of the Spirit within us. That's true power and abundant life in the freedom of Jesus. And do we find redemption in Christ? Satan has stolen something from all of us. And when you come to Jesus, that's when he begins to restore those things. The, the years that the locusts have eaten and the opportunities that you could have had and everything that you could have been before sin ravaged your life. And Jesus begins to restore that to you as you walk out into your own promised land. That's what Jesus has provided. And now we're living in what we call in New Testament terms, the now and the not yet 
We're experiencing the foretaste of these things now. But when Jesus returns to establish his kingdom, that's the ultimate year of Jubilee. It'll be a thousand years of Jubilee. And you remember last week we talked about the Day of Atonement will be fulfilled eschatologically when Israel finally calls on the name of the Lord, their sins are forgiven, and the Messiah establishes his kingdom. And that's when the year of Jubilee was to begin, on the Day of Atonement, when the trumpet sounded. And can I say something that might feel a little conspiracy theory-ish? And something that I would not stand on in strong biblical terms, but really fires up my imagination if I think about it long enough. If you look at the, the strict genealogical timeline that we have in the Bible, up until the time of Jesus was approximately 4,000 years. We've lived approximately 2,000 years since then. Wouldn't it be just like the Lord if the Sabbath millennium was the 1,000-year reign of Jesus Christ? Now, I'm not setting dates for the rapture because it's very plain as you read through the scripture that there are in some places, there's, there's gaps in the genealogies. That's not you know, a, an error in the Bible. That's just the way that they recorded history. So you might just say the only time left are the, the differences between dad and grandpa or maybe grandson and grandfather. Like, we don't, it, it just is really kind of cool to think about that the, the 7,000th year would be the Lord's millennial kingdom. So... Do that whatever you want. Just don't go nuts with it. It's just cool to think about. God seems to really like the number seven, doesn't he? <laughs> Once in a man's lifetime, every 50 years, everything would be restored. But here's the question that we'll answer as we come to the end of this chapter. What if the year of Jubilee was too far away? What if you were stuck and it was still 30 years away? Or you just had it and some catastrophe landed in your, in your crops. You got the boll weevil came through or something like that. And now what do we do? Well, the Lord made provision for that also. Verse 23. The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. For you are strangers and sojourners with me. And in all the country you possess, you shall allow a redemption of the land. If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer, underline that, shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. If a man has no one to redeem it, and then himself becomes prosperous and finds sufficient means to redeem it, let him calculate the years since he sold it and pay back the balance to the man to whom he sold it and then return to his property. But if he does not have sufficient means to recover it, then what he sold shall remain in the hand of the buyer until the year of Jubilee. In the Jubilee it shall be released, and he shall return to his property. If a man sells a dwelling house in a walled city, he may redeem it within a year of its sale. For a full year he shall have the right of redemption. If it is not redeemed within a full year, then the house in the walled city shall belong in perpetuity, that means forever, to the buyer. Throughout his generations it shall not be released in the Jubilee. But the houses of the villages that have no wall around them shall be classified with the fields of the land. They may be redeemed, and they shall be released in the Jubilee. As for the cities of the Levites, the Levites may redeem at any time the houses in the cities they possess. And if one of the Levites exercises his right of redemption, then the house that was sold in a city they possess shall be released in the Jubilee. For the houses in the cities of the Levites are their possession among the people of Israel, but the fields of pasture land belonging to their cities may not be sold, for that is their possession forever. So this is what is called in the Bible the law of the Goel. The kinsman redeemer. And this is a significant theme in the Bible. When you in the New Testament hear the word redeem or redeemer, it is calling back to this lesson here. 
Once property had been assigned in the promised land, and we're going to see that in the, in the life of Joshua, where they assign who gets what land, it could only be leased until the Jubilee for a maximum of 49 years. Because it was a tragedy in the land of Israel for a man to have to sell his piece of the promised land. This wasn't something you did in order to speculate and in order to acquire wealth for yourself. This was something you held on to. So God made a law that either this man or a close relative, his Goel, his redeemer, could redeem the land at any time for the cost remaining. So if you're poor and you've got to sell your farm in order to pay your, your bills, whatever they are, somebody else owns that land. Now, if you've got a cousin that has the money, he can come in and pay the cost of that land and get it back to you. And the one who bought it can't say no. That's what the law is trying to say here. Or if you manage to get back on your feet and you would pay it in proportion to the years remaining to the Jubilee. So again, this is that proportional law here. You're not going to have to pay the full price if you're going to get it back in one year anyway. This did not apply to houses in walled cities, excluding those of the Levites. We haven't quite gotten into that yet, but the Levites were not given a land in the promised land. They were given certain cities, and they were allowed to let their animals graze around those cities. So because their houses were all they had, they were allowed to buy their houses back at any time. And this, this concept comes up quite a bit in the Old Testament. In 1 Kings 21, the reason why Ahab and Jezebel's sin was so great in killing Naboth the Jezreelite is because they were asking him to sell his ancestral land. Sell your piece of the promised land. Sell me your vineyard so that I can turn it into a garden of herbs, Ahab said. And they killed him for it. In fact, they got a false trial and accused him of blasphemy, which is the sin we saw earlier in this chapter. Of course, Ruth is the big one. You all know this one, I'm sure. Boaz became the redeemer, not just of Elimelech's land, but also of Ruth. And that was the part he was excited about because <laughs> that, was his, uh, that was his close relatives, his kinsman's bride. And so in Ruth chapter three, verse nine, when she comes to him and there's that scene where he falls asleep on the threshing floor and she uncovers his feet. And this always, always makes me laugh, that story. And he wakes up and says, hey, what's going on? And she goes, did you know that you're my redeemer? And have you noticed how beautiful I look tonight? And he says, oh yeah, first thing in the morning, babe, you got it. And that's how that story played out. That, but don't, if you don't like me making that joke, that is exactly what that story is. She climbs into bed with him while he's passed out at the threshing floor. So, romance in the Bible. Also, Jeremiah 32. Jeremiah redeemed a piece of land even while Babylon was coming in to conquer it because he had faith that someday I'm going to return to this land. And that's actually a big part of the book of Jeremiah where him buying this land and everybody goes, why in the world would you buy land? We're about to get exiled. He goes, because we're coming back in 70 years. Moving very quickly because I want to get to the end. What's the lesson here? Don't wait for the state to help people out. You help them out. You do what needs to be done. If somebody's in deep, heavy debt, if somebody's car is broken, if somebody's about to lose their house, we as the church ought to step in like they did in Acts chapter 4 when they all were sharing their possessions equally. If somebody is allowed to fall into poverty in God's church, we should view it as shameful and we should meet the needs of each other. Let's read to verse 35 to 46. Similar passages here. 
If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest, nor give him your food for profit. I am the Lord you God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. If your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired worker and as a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of the Jubilee. Then he shall go out from you, he and his children with him, and go back to his own clan and return to the possession of his fathers. For they are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. You shall not rule over him ruthlessly, but shall fear your God. As for your male and female slaves whom you may have, you may buy male and female slaves from among the nations that are around you. You may also buy from among the strangers who sojourn with you and their clans that are with you who have been born in your land and they may be your property. You may bequeath them to your sons after you to inherit as a possession forever. You may make slaves of them, but over your brothers, the people of Israel, you shall not rule one over another ruthlessly. So further related to helping the needy, they're instructed to take care of the poor. Notice this. He says, don't just look at the poor and say, oh, what a shame. He says, you bring him into your house. Or lend him some money, but you can't charge him interest for it. The Lord really does not like loans with interest if you read the Old Testament. I don't much like them either, but that's for a different reason. (laughs) Now, if a man chose to hire out his labor as a slave, and by the way, if you think who would do that, remember Jacob in Genesis 29, I'll serve you seven years for Rachel. Similar idea. He didn't have any money. He had his labor. He says, if that happens, you treat him like a laborer. Don't press him hard like a slave. God did not permit abuse of slaves in his kingdom. And he would be freed at the Jubilee. So you could go from slave to landowner whenever the Jubilee came around. And the Lord says, this is because I freed you from slavery. And ultimately, you're my slaves. So treat each other kindly. Now, verses 44 through 46, I know are troubling words for us to read, but I want you to remember what we've learned. We spent a long time in Exodus talking about slavery according to the Bible. So you need to keep all of this in mind. They were permitted to purchase slaves from the nations, but in Exodus 21, 16, they were not allowed to purchase slaves who had been stolen from their homes. So it would seem if there is a debt slave from another nation, they could be bought or captured in conquest or something, but not slave trade as we think about it. And Deuteronomy 23 says, if a slave runs away to your house, you're not allowed to send him back. Instead, you're to give him money to set up a life for himself in your city. So even slaves in Israel could run away at any time. So that's something to consider. And a foreign slave did not have Hebrew rights, but you also have to remember they could become Hebrews anytime they wanted. The Lord probably incentivized them this way on purpose. And as always, we should remember that slavery was common at this time. It's still common in most parts of the world. And remember that it was the Bible and its teachings that led to its abolition in our own society. So before we cast judgment, we should be humble. Verse 47 through 55. If a stranger or sojourner with you becomes rich and your brother beside him becomes poor and sells himself to the stranger or sojourner with you or to a member of the stranger's clan, then after he is sold, he may be redeemed. One of his brothers may redeem him, or his uncle or his cousin may redeem him, or a close relative from his clan may redeem him. 
Or if he grows rich, he may redeem himself. So you are not prohibited from owning property as a slave in this culture. He shall calculate with his buyer from the year when he sold himself to him until the year of Jubilee, and the price of his sale shall vary with the number of years. The time he was with his owner shall be rated as the time of a hired worker. If there are still many years left, he shall pay proportionately for his redemption some of his sale price. If there remain but a few years until the year of Jubilee, he shall calculate and pay for his redemption in proportion to his years of service. He shall treat him as a worker hired year after year. The idea being the price of slaves or servants at this time was whatever the going rate for hiring somebody for that length of time was. He shall not rule ruthlessly over him in your sight. And if he is not redeemed by these means, then he and his children shall be released in the year of Jubilee. For it is to me that the people of Israel are servants. They are my servants, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So, just adding to what we read before, the Goel, the Redeemer, could redeem a man who had been sold into slavery to a foreigner. So remember, this is the similar law that we had before. And you could hasten his freedom. If he's like, look, I can't pay these bills. Look, can I work for you for seven years as your slave? And then that'll pay my, and you pay my debt. He goes, yeah, sure, come on in. And then his cousin finds out that that's happened. He can come in, pay what's left of the labor that this guy had bought and bring him back. And all of this, of course, the land and the people points to our ultimate redeemer, who was Jesus Christ. He became a man so that he could be our near kinsman, our blood relative, so that he could pay the price to rescue us. And in Revelation chapter 5, we don't have time to turn there, but you see that in heaven there's a scroll that represents the ownership of the earth. And nobody was found worthy to take it except the lamb who was slain, who took the scroll. And all of heaven celebrated because when Adam sinned, the earth was given over to the dominion of Satan and wickedness. But when Jesus died on the cross, he paid the price to redeem it and take it back. And the whole book of Revelation is God's active work to bring it back. And we're looking forward to that day. Until then, let's proclaim the message. Let's show practical justice and mercy to everybody we encounter. And let's let them know of the gospel that can set them free, give them rest, give them freedom, and give them redemption.